interpreted the psalm. And she was using a translation, uh, I guess like maybe the New American Standard Translation. Where are you? What translation were you using? What translation were you using? NIV translation. Okay. And then she changed the word because she said she thought she could make it clearer. So okay. So Psalm 108. So what makes this psalm so unusual? It's actually a combination of two other psalms put together to form a new song. And uh, I want to show this to you. Now I'm going to read Psalm 108, verses 1 through 5. Look what it says. There's somebody's phone ringing. And that was the president's phone who will be going out next month. <laughs> Psalm 108. Listen to these words. Oh God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and praise and give praise, even with my glory. Awake, lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your mercy is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and your glory above the earth. Okay? So that's the first five verses of Psalm 108. Now I want you to turn back to Psalm 57. Psalm 57. And when you get to 57, look at verse 7. See if this doesn't sound familiar. It's Psalm 57 and verse 7. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise. Awake my glory. Awake lute in the heart. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. For your mercy reaches the heavens and your truth unto the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. Same word. Now look at Psalm 60. Okay, only a couple psalms from that. And when you get to Psalm 60, look down at verse 5. That your beloved may be delivered... Say with your right hand and hear me. God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem. I will measure the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet of my head. Judah my lawgiver. Moab my washpot. Over Edom I will cast my shoe. Philistia shout in triumph because of me. Who will bring me to the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who did not go out with our armies, give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. Through God we will do valiantly, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies. Now go back to Psalm 108. And look down at verse 6. Psalm 108, verse 6. That your beloved may be delivered. Say with your right hand and hear me. God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem. I will measure out the valley of Sukkot. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim. You see that? So what do we have here? We have in Psalm 108 a combination of two other psalms. Thus making this a new psalm. <laughs> a new psalm combined of two other psalms. 
Now, all these psalms, if you read the superscriptions, are attributed to King David. Psalm 57, Psalm 60, and Psalm 108. So what's going on here? Well, we have two options. It could be that David, later in his life, is facing another danger. He is facing circumstances. And he needs help and he needs guidance. And guess what he does? He thinks back on two previous portions of psalms that he wrote. And he puts them together to make a new psalm. And now this, these words are going to give him the confidence that he needs to face the enemy. As Nancy said, who seems to be at the door ready to attack. Okay? So that's one possibility. The other possibility is that another leader, not David, but a later leader... Uh, maybe during the Babylonian captivity or right after the Babylonian captivity is facing circumstances and dangers and what does he do? He turns back to Psalm 57 and he turns back to Psalm 60 and he puts them together and he comes up with a new psalm still the psalm of David because it was David's words but this man has put it together he's compiled the two into a tract or a piece of literature that he will turn to or a song that he will sing in the midst of his trouble. Does that make sense? So those are our two options. So how do we divide 108, Psalm 108? We're going to divide it <laughs> the most simple way. Verses 1 through 5, <laughs> David's praise to God. Verses 7 through 12 or 1 through 6, David's praise to God. Verses 7 through 13, David's prayer to God. Okay, are you with me? So let's start. Let's look at the prayer to God. Here you'll see that the psalmist addresses God directly. Look at verse 1. O God, my heart is steadfast. In other words, it's not shaken. It's not being moved. It's settled. It's fixed. It's uh, uh, solid. It's on solid ground, and it's not moving anywhere. Uh, Bob just gave an illustration of what a West Texas wind was like. Get a chain, put an anvil on it, and guess what? Swings out, and then it comes back. It's being tossed to and fro by the wind, but the heart of the psalmist is fixed. It's not being moved. Now, that's confidence when you have a heart like that. Pastor Day talked about doubt, how people have doubts in their heart, didn't they? That's a heart that's being swayed one way or another. Not David's heart. His heart is fixed. And then look at his resolve at the end of verse 1. He says, I will sing and I will give praise. How will you do that, David? Even with my glory. He will not only praise David with his tongue, he will praise David with his face. His glory is his countenance. He thinks of God and his face shines and it's glorious and he prays God not only with his tongue but also with his face. Now when he says this, he says he's prepared to do this. That's why his heart is settled. And here's what he's going to do and he will do it. Which indicates that guess what? There are others whose hearts are not settled <laughs> and are tempted and reluctant, tempted to abandon God and reluctant to give praise to God. But David, he says, my heart is settled. I will praise. Does that make sense? 
Look at verse 2. He gives a command. It's very interesting. He says, Awake, lute, and awake, harp. Uh, he's talking these inanimate objects. A couple instruments, you know, reed instrument, stringed instrument, maybe sitting there over in the corner on a table, and they're just lying there. And guess what he says? Hey, wake up, lute! Wake up, heart! He's talking to them as if they're people. In literature, this is a figure of speech. It's known as apostrophe. When I teach my students to interpret scripture, I have to teach them all these figures of speech. Because when you come across the figure of speech, you can't take it literally. You have to take it figuratively. What's he trying to do? And uh, what he's basically doing, he's saying, hey, wake up. Uh, you're going to be needed in a moment. And look what he says at the end of verse 2. He says, I will awaken at dawn. This is his resolve to praise God. When is he going to praise God? He's going to praise God what? At dawn. Look, he says, I will awaken the dawn. Now notice it doesn't say, I will awaken at dawn. Did you see that? He's not going to awaken at dawn. What's he going to do? I'm going to awaken dawn. <laughs> I am going to get up before dawn, and I am going to greet the sun when it comes up. David rises before the sun rises. And he does it because his heart is resolved to praise God. And he plans on using the lute and the harp. And so he's saying, hey, you better get ready. <laughs> I'm getting up before dawn. Wake up! Wake up! Yep. Now, I get up a lot of times before dawn. I get up sometimes, I wouldn't say all the time, but a good portion of the time I wake up before the sun wakes up. But I want you to know something. I don't say anything. <laughs> so I have at least two cups of coffee. <laughs> My eyes hardly open, you know. And only then do I speak, and then I will say, Lynn says, well, do you want breakfast? And I'll go, Grun I'll grunt. You know? That's about the extent of my verbiage that early in the morning, but not David. So he's placing himself, I believe, apart from others. So we get a, get a sense into what David is like. And if this is a later leader who's turning these passages, he's taking David as his lead. And uh, if this is David, of course David is saying, this is what I need to do in my situation right now. Now he elaborates. <clears throat> Look at verse 3. I will praise you, O Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, the covenant God. I will praise you among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. Notice that his praise, he resolves that his praise will not only be done in private, when he's alone, he will praise God in public among the lost nations, among the heathens. Now remember, David's a king, right? A king has meetings with other heads of state from other nations, and they're not necessarily your religion. But guess what David is resolved to do? When I get in those circumstances, I'm going to be praising God. I'm going to be telling them about the covenant God of Israel and how faithful and good he is. And so that's David's resolve, not only to praise God privately, but also to praise God publicly. The reason for his resolve, look at verse 4. Here's why he praises God. Because your mercy is great. How great is it? Above the heavens. 
your truth is great. How great is God's truth to the point that it reaches the clouds? Now these words are covenant words. Mercy means loving kindness. Mercy means compassion. And this is what God promised that he would show as a result of his contract, his covenant with Israel. He would be kind to them, he'd be compassionate, he'd be loving toward them. And he said, you can count on my word. When I say I'll do that, I will do that. Because his word is his bond. How, how great is his compassion? Hey, it reaches beyond heaven. How much can you trust God's word? Hey, the sky's the limit. In other words, he's giving us clouds and heavens, and he's saying, you know, there's no limit to my loving kindness toward you. There's no limit to my truthfulness and my righteousness toward you. See? So it's beyond limit in a sense. So God's word never fails. There are no bounds. Now remember when David is saying this, no one has ever gone beyond heaven. They didn't have airplanes. Everybody was on the ground. <laughs> when he says up to the heavens or beyond heavens, he's saying it's out of this world. It's without limit. His grace and his mercy and his truth. You can count on it that much. Look at verse 5. So here's what he says. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. And your glory above all the earth. In other words, display your glory. Uh, without limit to everybody so everybody can see it. Everybody can look up and see it. So, that is his praise. Okay, now we come to his prayer, beginning at verse 6. Now look what he says. That your beloved may be delivered, save with your right hand, and hear me. So there is his prayer. Save with your right hand, and deliver me. This is the issue. This is the problem. This is the problem that the writer faces. He needs to be delivered. He needs to be rescued. He needs to be saved. He needs to be saved from his enemies, as Nancy said in her dramatic reading. And therefore he says in verse 7 or verse 6, your beloved, that your beloved may be delivered, you need to do something. Because guess what? We can't deliver ourselves. God needs to do something. Verse, seven, verse 6. He needs to save with his right hand. Now, the question we have to ask here in verse 6 is who is the beloved? <clears throat> that your beloved may be delivered, save with your right hand, and hear me. In other words, answer my prayer. God promised in the covenant that he would save and rescue his people if they cried out to him. So he's saying, hey, keep your word. But who are the beloved here? Is he saying Israel needs to be saved? You know, Israel's called God's beloved. Is that who he's referring to? Save, save Israel? Is he talking about himself? King David is his beloved? In Psalm 110, he said, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He also says that about Jesus. Is Jesus the beloved? When Jesus was on the cross, guess what he said? Take this cup from me, save me, deliver me. Right? Is that... Is he talking about Messiah here? The church is called beloved. You know, can we? Can this prayer be applied to us as well? I believe when the early church read these psalms in the first century, and they saw the word beloved, guess who they applied it to? 
themselves. Or is he, does this refer to individuals? Am I one of God's beloved? Can this be my prayer? Can this be my resolve? See, so whoever it is, what we get from this verse is that without God's intervention, disaster's right at the corner, around the corner. And we're about to be defeated. And so God has to save us with his right hand. And right hand in Bible times referred to a person's power. Okay. Very few left-handed people in the Bible. <laughs> Although I did it, I preached once, gave a short talk once at a baseball banquet about, I forget who it was, that picked up stones with his left hand and threw them and killed the enemy. And I was talking about an old South Paul baseball player who threw with his left hand. And I, uh, uh, what's that have to do with anything I'm talking about? <laughs> this is great. So anyway, the point is, without God's intervention, disaster faces us. Okay? Now here's the reason he believes that God will answer and deliver. Okay? Look at verse 7. Here's the reason. God has spoken. You see that? In his holiness, in his righteousness, he has spoken in His holiness. You can count on it. When did He speak? He spoke in the past. What did He say in the past? He said this, I will rejoice, I will divide Shechem, and measure out the valley of Sukkoth. Now notice the three I wills. Do you see that? God has spoken. That was in the past. What did He say in the past? I will... That's in the future. Do you see that? He said something in the past. And he made three promises. You can count on it. You can be sure that this will happen. He said, number one, I will rejoice. God's not going to lose in any battle. He's going to win. He's going to rejoice. Number two, he said, I will divide Shechem. Shechem was 40 miles north of Jerusalem. Key word there really is divide. And I will measure out the valley of Sukkoth, which is the Jordan Valley region. God made a promise in Genesis 49 and in other places that he was going to give the Jews the promised land where other people lived. And he was going to divide that land among the 12 Jewish tribes. And this was his promise. So, based on that promise, David doesn't expect to lose the promised land. He expects that he's going to continue to have the promised land. Verse 8 says, God continued to speak. Gilead is mine. Now remember, Shechem and Sukkoth in verse 7 were the enemy who was possessing the land of Canaan that God was going to give over to the Jewish people. And now, that was enemy territory. Now God speaks about his own tribes. Look what he says. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. The tribe of Ephraim also is the helmet of my head. It stood north of the capital city of Jerusalem like a helmet. All that was going to be their tribe. Those tribes are going to have that region. Judah is my lawgiver. And Judah is, of course, the southern kingdom. So... And that's where the capital is, in Jerusalem. And that's the lawgiver. The scepter will not depart from Judah. Remember Jacob said that on his deathbed when he 
was uh, giving his promises and his blessings upon his children. Judah is my lawgiver. That's where the ruler will be. And then he talks about his enemies. God says, Moab is my wash pot. Well, that's a very famous verse. And this is where it's located. Have you ever heard that verse? It's Psalm 108. Here's how God, look. Gilead is mine. My beloved. Manasseh is mine. Now let me tell you about my enemies. Let me tell you about Moab. Moab is my wash pot. Now a wash pot is not worth much. It's dirty, filthy water that you throw out at the end of the day. You get your feet all dirty and you would clean them off and at the end of the day you throw that out. So the wash pot's not really he doesn't love he doesn't love the wash pot. It's like what Bob said in the little story about the principal and the girls who kiss the mirror. And the lady who cleaned the bathrooms, what did she do? She dipped something in the pot. And that solved the girl's problems, didn't it? <laughs> now I know we'll, on tape, when people hear this, they're not going to know what I'm talking about. But you did. And God looks at Moab as a wash pot. And look what else he says in verse 9. Over Edom, I will cast my shoe. So you remember when the statue of Saddam Hussein came down, what the people started doing? Throwing the shoes at it and hitting the shoes. That means, you know, I see them as my enemy, my defeated enemy. This is how I, I look upon, this is what I think of, you know, of Edom. And he goes on, he says, and Philistia, over Philistia, I will triumph. See, there's a, the I will again. Do you see that? The I will? So, we know that God's enemies will indeed lose. So now David speaks. Look what he says. Who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? So now we see that he is going to have to face the enemy. And he says, who's going to lead me to the strong city? The NIV translated it this way. Who will lead me to the fortified city? How do I get into the enemy's fortified city? Which enemy's fortified city? What's it say in verse 10? Edom. Edom. The reason that Edom was hard to be conquered is because the main city of Edom was Petra. And some of you have taken Holy Land tours and you've been to Petra, the rose red city. How do you get inside of Petra? Narrow gorge, right? You have to take donkeys or something to get in there? See, now today, Petra couldn't be a fortified city. We just had the plane and bomb it. Right? <laughs> but in those days, they didn't have planes. You know? What are those other things that circle around and shoot down? Drones, yeah. Today, you just have a drone, you know, and you're gone. But if you wanted to invade a city of the enemy, like... Petra, you'd have to go through this gorge. You couldn't get in. You couldn't take an army in there. You'd go one at a time, two at a time. All they needed was rocks to throw down on you. You, know. you just you couldn't, be, you couldn't beat them. So Edom, although it was God's enemies, was always resilient because they could just 
they could just withdraw into Petra, and they would be protected. So he asked the question. He says in verse 10, Who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? Who will do what is basically impossible? Now, this could be, we know originally this referred to David trying to get into Edom or Petra. If this is a later leader who is using these verses, his enemy may be Edom as well. If this is a person who compiled this psalm, these two psalms, into a new psalm, when he reads Edom, he thinks of Edom in his day, not in David's day. Do you know that Edom sided with Babylon? When the Babylonians came in to capture Jerusalem and the Jews went into 70 years of Babylonian captivity, you know the Edomites were on the side of the Babylonians? It's very interesting. In fact, look over at Psalm 137. Look at 137. Show this to you. Which means that this new psalm, this new combined psalm, could be during the Babylonian times or post-Babylonian times. It makes sense to me. And when you get to Psalm 137, look down at verse 7. Look what the psalmist says. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem. We want you to remember when Jerusalem was destroyed and Edom was involved. Look what Edom said. The day of Jerusalem, verse 7. Who said, raise it, raise it. To its very foundation. O oh, daughter of Babylon, who are you who are to be destroyed? Happy the one who repays you as you have served us. So you see that Edom in this verse and Babylon were together raising the city of Jerusalem. And maybe this later leader goes back to David's psalm and he says, oh, this is a psalm for me. Now here's my question. Back in Psalm 108, verse 10, who will bring me into the strong city? How will I get in there now, in my day and age, when I have to fight these people who turned against us and joined Babylon? Verse 10. Who will lead me to Edom? See? Look at verse 11. Is it not you, O God? You're the one that's going to lead me to defeat the enemy. Is it not you, O God? But then look how he describes God. Is it not you, O God, who did what? Who cast us off. Because the Jews were not obedient to the covenant, and God just cast them off. And that's why Babylon came upon them and defeated them and allowed the Edomites to join them in doing so. And you, O God, who did not go out with our armies. Notice in the past he says you did not go out with our armies when we tried to defeat Babylon. We were just left on our own. But guess what? Now God is going to go out with them. He's the one that's going to lead charge to the fortified city. Does that make sense to you? You see that contrast between verses, you know, those verses? <clears throat> Is it not you? So that's the answer. Yes, it is. He's a rhetorical question. Yes, the God who abandoned them at first is going to come and rescue them. So look at verse 12. 
Here's the request. Second time we have the request. Give us help from trouble. For the help of man is what? Useless. It's, if I depend upon alliances with other nations <laughs> like we did before, we are in real trouble. The help of man is... If I try to depend and just depend on my own army, depend on man, oh, we got more people than they do, we can defeat them. Heck, that's useless. So he says, God, verse 12, give us help from trouble. Because the help of man is useless. See, that's what he says back in verse 6. That your beloved may be delivered. Save us with your right hand. Because our hands just are not going to each other. So he makes this final statement in verse 13, this determination. Through God, we will do valiantly. Now, is it God who's going to deliver them, or are they going to deliver themselves? Which is it? Yeah, it's a partnership. It's through God that we will do Valiantly. God is going to lead the charge. Remember Gideon and his 300 men? You know, God had wanted to defeat the Midianites, and the thought is, well, let's, big, let's build the biggest army we can. We can beat these guys. Hey, depending on man, Jesus. So what does God say? Let's start windling people there. Yeah, let's, let's, there's windling. <laughs> Let's get rid of some. So he ends up with 300 men. He's going to fight the Midianite army? Come on, give me a break. But what does he do? Goes around, he circles the tents of the army. You can't. He says, on the count of three, I want you to just scream out as loud as you can. The sword of the Lord! And Gideon. So they do that, what happens? Besides <coughs> getting forced. <laughs> so they defeat the Midianites so now he says through God we can do valiantly and he has total assurance because he says right at the end of verse 4, 13 for it is he who should, shall tread down our enemy <clears throat> oh we can do valiantly through God because it's He who will tread down everybody. He's going to tread them down. We're just going to walk on in here if we say the sword of the Lord and get in or something like that. So, we don't know exactly who the enemy is, although it seems to be that it's Edom and, or some other heathen nation who were on the verge of attacking this writer and the nation of Israel. And God's people have enemies. And this is what you do when you have enemies. We don't know exactly, can't be for sure who the enemy is, but God's people have always been attacked. Whether it's Israel, was Israel attacked? Was his beloved Israel attacked? No, they're attacked over and over again. Was Jesus' beloved attacked? Yes. Has the church been attacked? Have you ever been attacked for your faith? Yes. See? So, we know something because in the past, God has said something. I will, I will, I will. And we have God's guarantee that he will intervene 
on our behalf and that we will be victorious. And that's why we, even when we read this psalm, Israel read this psalm and sang this psalm. The church in the first century read this psalm and sang this psalm. And now in the 21st century, we're reading this psalm. And like the other beloveds throughout history, we can have confidence that through God, we can do valiantly and our enemies will not conquer us. What did Jesus say? Jesus crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. We're going to defeat him. That's what Jesus says. I'm going to trust you, Father. The victory is yours, not mine. So, like a sheep who goes to slaughter, he kept his mouth shut, and they killed him and said, we took care of that. But guess what? Three days later, God raised him from the dead. Could he ever be killed again? No. So who's the victor? Rome or Jesus? Now we are the beloved. We're being attacked. Maybe some of the freedoms that we have in America we will lose. You'll say, <gasps> but how are you feel inside? <coughs> or are you like David? My heart is steadfast. Because Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's the confidence we have. That's Psalm 108. Next week, Psalm 108. Lord, we thank you for your word that is true, your compassion which is out of this world, your promises that we can count on. Help us, Lord, like the psalmist in 57 and 60 and 108, have steadfast hearts. And may we praise you, not only in private, but in public, knowing that you are a God who is faithful to your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.